someone has observed that many years ago they did not put up signs reading men working. But then he observed you could tell what men were doing back then. Would you open your Bible, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we think about this theme of work, firming up our foundation with regards to work. We're going to read a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians 4. They are verses 11 and 12. This is, of course, Labor Day weekend, and so it seems fitting for us to reflect upon what the Bible has to say regarding work. I have read theologies about different aspects of life. I don't ever recall reading or even seeing a theology regarding work. And yet God has some important things to say to us in his word about our work. The text that we're going to read is penned by a man who was acquainted with hard work. That's the Apostle Paul. It was written by Paul to encourage and instruct new believers in their faith and in their lifestyle in the midst of a pagan city, the city of Thessalonica. Paul preached in that city on his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 17 tells us about it. Having crossed the Aegean Sea, leaving behind Asia and entering Europe, Paul then went on to preach at the city of Philippi. Following that, he proceeded down the Ignatian Way, which was a major military and uh, commercial road linking the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. After traveling about 40 miles down that road, he came to the city of Thessalonica. And as his custom was, he went into the city to preach in the synagogue. As a result of that, there were some Jews who believed, and there were many Gentiles who also believed. So successful was he that persecution broke out in the city against him and his message. Even after he left the city, the opposition continued. Arriving a bit later in the city of Athens, Paul dispatched Timothy to return to Thessalonica. As it says in chapter 3, verse 2 of this very book, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And so he dispatched Timothy to go back to Thessalonica where persecution was still raging. And he wanted to hear a report as to how the church was doing. This letter then is Paul's response to what Timothy brought back in his report. In verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, and he goes on to explain his burden for them in writing the letter. You see, there were some who had already come to the city of Thessalonica to undermine Paul's credibility. It wasn't that they were necessarily Paul's enemies, but they were enemies of the gospel. And they knew that they could undermine Paul in his credibility and thus undermine his message. 
and there were others who were spreading false doctrine already in the city of Thessalonica. And so you can see that wherever the church is planted, Satan is right behind the planting, doing what he can to disrupt God's work. There were those who were teaching false doctrine regarding the Lord's return. And so Paul writes this letter to them now to correct the false doctrine and to encourage them in their walk, especially in the light of persecution. One of the questions the people apparently had was, how do we live out our faith in the midst of a pagan city like this? Thessalonica was like all of the other cities of the Roman Empire, was filled with temples and gods and altars. A lot of immorality went along with that. And so they, they said, well, Paul, how do we live as Christians in this kind of a culture? And so he writes now to tell them in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 8, he says, you must live in purity. I know, I know, there's immorality all around you, and it seems like everybody else is doing it, but not you. You learn how to possess your body in holiness. And he says, not only must you live in purity, you must live in charity. Learn to love one another, verses 9 and 10. And then in our text, verses 11 and 12, he says, as Christians, we are to live in honesty in a pagan world. And as part of that honesty, he talks about work. Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need and so he drops into this epistle this word about work, manual work. Now the economic situation of that day was quite different than ours. Their culture depended upon agriculture, depended upon skilled trades. In fact, every Jewish man had to learn a trade. That was part of their tradition. And Paul was no exception, right? Paul knew how to work with his hands. In fact, in chapter 2 of this epistle, he reminds them of that. He says, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, <clears throat> so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul reminds them that he had used his trade in that city to support himself. Now from Acts chapter 18, we understand a little bit about his trade. It was working with leather. He was called a tent maker. Although there are some today who studying that concept in that culture say that it may not just have been tents. Paul may have been a cobbler. He may have been a shoemaker. A maker of sandals out of leather. But the point is that Paul knew how to work with his hands. Now, when he emphasizes labor, work with your hands, he's not talking about the kind of work you should do, because there are not many of us that work with our hands. We work in other ways. But what his emphasis is, is to work rather than being lazy. 
rather than being idle. Robert Frost observed, the world is full of willing people. Those willing to work and those willing to let them work. He tells us here that we are to be among those who are willing to work. Honest work and labor is respectable. Not only that, I believe that honest work is required of all of those who can do it. <clears throat> now there are some who cannot do it. Some because of disabilities. Others because of their age. And the scripture tells us that we as a body of people are to look after the needs of widows and orphans. But as a general principle, God upholds hard work. Now, if we're going to look at a biblical theology of what work means, we have to go back to where work is first mentioned in the Bible. And where do you suppose that is? Right, the book of Genesis. So let's turn back to the book of Genesis and to the second chapter. <clears throat> As we begin the chapter, it summarizes by saying, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work. That's the first occasion of the word work in the Bible. It's not human work. It's God's work. God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so God's creative acts are here described as work. Now the word that is used here, is not a word that emphasizes how God toiled and labored. It is a word that emphasizes the skill of what was done and the benefit of it. That was God's work. God finished his creating work in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was tired. God exerted tremendous power in his creative work. But he did not get tired. God doesn't get tired. But God rested on the seventh day to set a pattern. He sanctified that day to set a pattern for man in his work. We see here that the creation was designed by divine intelligence, that it honors its creator. We see here that what God worked on was not only skillfully made, but it was beneficial. It was good. God saw what he made and said, it's good. It's good. And so God's creative acts are described as work. But not only that, we see in the book of Genesis that God blessed mankind with the gift of work. Did you see how I said that? He blessed 
mankind with the gift of work. The Lord didn't burden us with work. He blessed us with work. Look over in uh, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them, <clears throat> notice this, rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. Notice that. He blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule. Now please notice, this is before Genesis chapter 3. Some people have the idea that work is the result of the fall and the sin. Not at all. God commanded man to work, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule it, before there was ever any sin within man. God blessed us with work. He designated man as his vice-regent, so to speak, as a sovereign over this globe. And he said to man, rule it. It is yours to govern. It is yours to subdue and to fill. But we can't ignore Genesis chapter 3 as it relates to work. God blessed us with work to do before there was sin. But sin did change the nature of the work. <clears throat> when man fell into sin, he lost his privilege of rule and was, as Dr. Charles Ryrie says, condemned to make, condemned to exhausting labor in order to make a living because of a curse on the ground. Let's read about it in chapter 3. <clears throat> the fall has taken place already, and God is now meeting with those who are part of it. And in verse 17, he has something to say to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Notice that, in toil. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so we see fulfilled the curse of death because of sin. But in addition to that, we see that work changed. Now there was going to be involved in work toil. 
and sweat. The ground was pronounced by God good. And now God says, cursed. Man could eat freely of all the trees of the garden but the one. But now God says he must eat his food by the sweat of his brow. So now we understand why mankind so often does not perceive work as a blessing. Despite what the fall of man did to work, however, work is still a blessing. And it comes to us from God for our good. That brings me to another point that I want to make. Not only is God the author of work, but God has authored work for our benefit. Let's just think about some of the benefits of work. In the first place, it gives to us a purpose. We need purpose. We need meaning. We need accomplishment. We all look forward to vacation, don't we? We can hardly wait to get into that campsite by the lake. Go out on the boat, go fishing or whatever you like to do. We can hardly wait to get out there and rest. But after you've been out there about a week or two, what happens? You begin to get this restless feeling inside. You're having fun. You're with your family. Or maybe you're alone, if that's what you prefer. You're doing what you want to do, and yet inside there is this nagging feeling that you want to do something. That's because you're a human being and not an animal. You're a created person, and God has given you, as a human being, a need to accomplish. He has given you a need to be significant, to have a purpose, and work does that for us. Through work, we have the opportunity to do things, and we see our finished product. It is frustrating to those of us who are in kinds of work where you don't have that. For those of us who are in work where you go home and the job is never done, it's good to have a hobby. So that you can work on something and see the finished product there and say, it's finished, look at it. There's a great sense of satisfaction in that. You see, work is a blessing. What if God hadn't given us work to do? Life would be frustrating. Life would lack purpose and accomplishment. But God's given us work. It would be a terrible punishment to have have to work without any sense of of purpose to it. One of the things that uh, the Germans did to break people in their concentration camps was to give them work that had no meaning. And so the prisoners would be taken out to this large pile of rocks and they would labor for days and days from morning till night to move it over here. And when the last rock was over there, then they had to labor to move it back over here. 
and back and forth and back and forth until people went crazy. We need to have a sense of doing something. And work gives that to us. It's a gift from God. Not only that, work as a benefit to us provides for our needs. Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4.12 where Paul suggests this ever so briefly but certainly with, with a, a point. He says, work with your hands so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, he says, you need to work so that you meet your needs. He had done that himself, hadn't he? We read the verse back in chapter 2, verse 9. Somebody said one of the hardest ways to make a living is to work for it. But that's the whole idea. With work, we earn our living. We meet our needs. That's God's blessing to us. If we have the ability to work for ourselves, we should not depend upon others. And then there's a third reason that God has given us work. It's a benefit. It's a blessing. It is so that we, through our work, might bless others. Look back in Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Where again, Paul talks about work. I almost use this as my text. <clears throat> because he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 4, Let him who steals, steal no more. Now, you know, the implication here is striking to me because it suggests that there were some of the Christians in the church who were stealing. He says, rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. One of the blessings of work is that it allows us to bless others. Paul emphasized this in a number of the churches. <clears throat> he encouraged them to give even out of their poverty so that the saints who were impoverished even more in Jerusalem could have something to live on. They were under great stress and persecution. And so Paul was gathering up offerings from churches here and there throughout Asia Minor, throughout uh, Greece, modern-day Greece, and he was taking all of that back to Jerusalem to minister to the needs of the saints. God allows us to work so that we can benefit others. There's great joy in that. Jesus was right, of course, when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't it a great joy when you can find out maybe even a little secretly in a sneaky way that somebody has a need and then to be able to channel a gift to them some way so that they don't even know where it comes from. And as far as they're concerned, God just dropped it on them. There's tremendous joy in that and delight in being able to see people radiate 
and how God has met their need. And to be the channel for that. God wants us to work to be able to do that. Now, there are other reasons that God has given us work, other benefits. We can advance the gospel through it. Through it, we build up the church. Work benefits our character. Work is good for human society. All of these are benefits of work. God has authored work for humanity's benefits. But God makes it clear in his word that if there are those who can work, who will not work, they should not be given anything to eat. Boy, that cuts against the grain of our welfare mentality, doesn't it? And again, I'm not talking about welfare blanket. I'm talking about those cases where people receive welfare and they cannot work. That's unbiblical. I appreciate the moves in a number of states as well as in our Congress to make people who are receiving public money more responsible. I am in agreement that our welfare system has helped to destroy our society in the name of doing good. I mean, the people who started that probably were sincere in what they, but it's destroying our society. It's got to be changed. And not everybody's going to be happy about it. But it is a biblical principle. Look over in 2 Thessalonians. You know, this, this problem of work must have been more than, than we think. Paul just mentions it ever so briefly in his first letter, but in his second letter, there's a major problem. There's a group of Christians, professing Christians at least, who refused to work. They were able to work, but they freeloaded off of others. And so Paul does not comfort them. He does not embrace them. He does not sympathize with these people. He admonishes them. Look in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. We command you, brethren, in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. That is, he's out of step. And not according to the tradition which you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. We kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Picture there, running from here to there, one place to another, checking on people, you know, a busybody. They're they're busy, but not doing anything. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, 
so that he may be put to shame. You see, what he's talking about here is church discipline. That there is to be an accountability to the body. And if someone is a lazy, freeloading, busybody, he is not to eat. The church is not to take up support for him. The believers have no obligation to support him. He's not talking about widows and orphans, etc., etc. He is talking about those who can work and refuse to work. Now, why is he so strict on this? It's because God has authored work, and God has called work good. It is good for us. And so we today must resist cultural values that denigrate the place of work, the welfare mindset that says society owes it to me, the consumer mindset that says I want my desires satisfied now and with no obligations on my part. You see, we have to be aware of these attitudes because these values have a way of creeping into our idea about the church too. Why should I work in ministry? I work hard all week. Someone should take care of my kids, my family, and let me sit in church and enjoy it without having to work. Oh. I've put in my time. Let somebody else do it. Oh. I want to be served, but don't expect me to do anything. Oh. Where do you think those kinds of ideas come from? Not from the Bible. They come from the world. You see, the very attitudes that many Christians lambaste in the world, and rightly so, they practice in the church. Work belongs in the church, too. And all of us have work to do. Well, there are many other things we can say about work, but one thing I do want to say in closing is that when you have worked well, rest well. Will you? You know, there are some people who have a horrible time resting. They're workaholics. They work, 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 and somehow their whole identity is wrapped up in work. Well, bless the Lord, they know how to work, but they need to learn how to rest, too. You see, God worked for six days on creation. He rested on the seventh. It only took God six days to do all of creation. Now, I know that's before government regulation. That's before OSHA. We understand that. But when God had finished the work of six days, he rested. And he gave us an example. Now, I know we're not, we're not practicing the Sabbath as a religious ceremony and ritual and all that. That's part of the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. But there's a principle there that we also need to rest. And some of you need to learn that. You need to be able to lay your work down and rest and be refreshed. When you have worked well, learn to rest well. Well, we come to the Lord's table that reminds us of another work of the Lord. We've talked about the work of creation. This reminds us of his work of redemption. When God had finished the work of creation, he said, it is good. When he had finished the work of redemption, he said, it is finished. 
And we come to a table reminding us of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of our Lord. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you're a member of this church or not, you're invited to come to this table, assuming you're walking in fellowship with the Lord. And let us be reminded that we do not work for our salvation. That by God's goodness and, and grace, we rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Let's rejoice today in his shed blood, his broken body for us. Let's bow together. Father, as we gather around this table, we want to thank you for the wonderful work of creation that reveals your power and deity, your intelligence. We worship you because of that. But if possible, even more so, we worship you for the work of redemption because through this finished work of Christ, we have found salvation. And as we come to this table, we quiet our hearts and remind ourselves that it's by grace that we're saved, not of works. And we partake of this cup with gratitude. We partake of this bread in gratitude for your finished work. Amen. Thank you.